Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Welcome back to part two of our conversation. Here's your host, Brian Brodeur. Speaking of cutting lays, tell me about what you've seen in the major advances in cutting lays over the years. Was there a point at which the bulk of the improvement had been achieved, or is it still steady improvement in that technology? Well, at this point, I don't believe that any new cutting lanes are being built, and I don't actually think that anything new has been constructed in 20 years or so. I use a Neumann lathe, and well, it was originally designed to use direct metal mastering, and that was the very last of the new designs for cutting records. DMM is only being cut in a couple of places in the world these days, and not being used to its truest potential. I cut DMM for almost 12 years exclusively and got some cuts out of it that I'm really proud of in terms of what I was able to get on disc from the masters. The lathes that are around these days are all maintained beautifully because they're complicated pieces of equipment, but they are not new pieces of equipment. They're ones that require constant attention. Got it. I wanted to look at You and I talked about this once before, where consumers may walk into Barnes & Noble and see some vinyl records and say, oh, vinyl's making a comeback. And for whatever reason, I keep hearing that, maybe for the last 10 years, and that is built on the perception that, well, everything is digital and that vinyl is this boutique niche-oriented thing. So one of the connections to that is obviously making one-offs for clubs too. And certainly there's an interest with the advent of hip hop over the last 20 years and the growth of that genre. There's been a continued interest of cutting out powerful lacquer masters that are either being used at some point for either one-offs or club mixing or more boutique and collector I think we see the language of, what is it, 180 gram, where it's, quote, high-quality releases. Can you give me your perspective on what we may see marketed to us or, or the word on the street about the, the new life of vinyl and the new life of cutting? Well, yeah. The current emphasis in weight of the record, and when you say you see advertisements for 180 gram vinyl, that's the actual weight of the record. Records are made in a manner that allows a variance or a variety of different thicknesses. Because a record is thicker, it really doesn't have any intrinsic improvement. You're limited by the cut on the lacquer before you even get to the pressing stage. Let's go back a half a step. 
if you were to cut a 15-minute side of music and you got a pretty good level on it and it might be very competitive and it sounds lovely, what has to happen is after you cut the lacquer in the mastering studio, you send that lacquer off to get plated. The plating is done in an outside facility, and it's a nickel plating that's applied over the original lacquer, making the original lacquer at that point uh, useless. But what you're doing when you plate it is you get a father, which has ridges rather than grooves. From the father, you would make a mother, which has grooves instead of ridges. From the mother, you make a stamper, and the stamper actually is a piece that goes into the record press. Now, when you're talking about 180-gram pressings, that means that there is a wide space between the two stampers, one for the A side, one for the B side, and there's a lot of plastic material that's allowed to be between the two stampers, making for a heavy, high-quality disc. But the sound itself is fixed when the lacquer is cut. So you can make a record that has 180-gram pressing, and it'll feel hefty, and it won't wiggle around in your hands, or you can make a 125-gram record, both using exactly the same lacquer master, and they should both sound essentially the same. So what I'm trying to say is the 180-gram pressings, I believe, are somewhat of a marketing tool and not necessarily such that they can improve the sound intrinsically. The sound is fixed when the lacquer is cut. Yeah, that's great. I get it. Before we get to, I want to talk about the mother-father, the stamper relationship, particularly for these really large selling releases that we're all familiar with, whether it's the Rolling Stones or Springsteen. Think of Michael Jackson, Thriller. I mean, the primary release format for that album was vinyl, and that was millions and millions of copies sold. Before we get there, I did want to address a consumer question. So if we're talking about vinyl albums, and if someone is listening to this and they're interested in the resurgence or they're interested in listening to vinyl cuts, tell me why they shouldn't turn their computer on, go to Amazon and order the $39.99 USB turntable recorder. Tell us what an informed consumer should be listening to these albums on. There are record playback machines, record players, in all price ranges. Basically, what you're paying for when you buy a higher quality record player is the stability, the speed that the record turns, because you want to make sure that the record is being played accurately at the proper speed. You want to have a tone arm that can track the really, really detailed groove in the record and extract as much signal out of that groove as possible. In other words, making use of all the hard work of the mastering engineer and the cutting engineer, you know, there are nuances and there are entire quantum leaps of level of quality that you can reach. There are turntables out there that cost as much as a car and they sound incredible. I mean, the, the difference between that and a 3995 turntable with a USB port is night and day. I mean, literally, it's quite amazing. 
Also, when you're getting the 3995 special, there are all kinds of sophisticated devices, digital to analog or analog to digital converters that you can buy, which will help, again, extract the most from that record, from that analog signal. And then if you want to listen to it in the future in a digital format, give you a higher transfer, a better transfer by allowing you to hear more of the sound. Wow, great. So let's talk about these giant releases. I mean, the real heyday of lacquer cutting and mastering manufacturing releases for vinyl, we think about the 1980s. And this is the Rolling Stones. This is Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen. This is Michael Jackson, even the Eagles to some extent. Here's a very specific question. So how many stampers because you're talking about the father, the mother process, how many stampers for manufacturing was the mastering engineer for these releases responsible for? Were other mastering engineers needed to cut other stampers at some point? They could be asked to do that, but generally speaking, the mastering studio that did the mastering work, the creative sound-altering work on the uh, masters, were also the ones that cut the original uh, lacquers, and then the fathers and the nickel mothers were taken from that. Stampers were the actual pieces that were put in the record presses, and they'd be good for 1,000 to 1,500 pressings each. Then you had to make additional stampers from those mothers and go through the same process. Generally speaking, you'd make a couple of sets of masters for each uh, record company's uh, plant around the world. In other words, if it were a Michael Jackson release and you knew it was going to be selling, but not only in the United States, but also in France, England, Germany, Japan, etc., you would make lacquers for each of those regions, and there might be two or three pressing plants in each country. You'd make lacquers for each of those pressing plants so that they'd all be able to make their own stampers and go ahead without interruption and press as many copies as necessary. Wow, so many moving parts. Yeah, it was a very profitable part of the business. And actually, when records went into decline at the beginning of the CD era in the middle 80s, a lot of the business that used to go through mastering houses was discontinued because the work that was required to make the actual lacquers for all of these various regions or plants went away. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting. Bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. So other than creating a lacquer, what else is or was expected of a mastering engineer in terms of work on the mix he or she provided with? How much do tapes and files vary in the amount of work that they need when they come in during the process? Oh, it varies considerably. If you're getting a master tape from a really experienced recording engineer, there might have to be little or no change that the mastering engineer was subjecting the master tape to. However, again, and this is a situation that's still in existence today, sometimes 
due to a, a variety of reasons. The master didn't sound quite as good as you wanted, and you would have to do an awful lot of work to get it to sound right. Sometimes it was just a question of detail of the transfer. When I did the uh, Brian Wilson Smile record, we used no equalization, no compression. We were going for as much sonic purity as possible. When we cut that, we used an analog playback deck, an analog delay unit, and the finest analog console that we had. And as a result, the vinyl for that product, for that project, sounded way better than the CD did. It was like opening a door and seeing the sunlight come through. It was quite dramatic in difference. Now, this is fascinating. I heard you say a delay unit. Now, off the top of my head, I'm surprised that delay is being introduced in the mastering process. Tell us how delay may be used. Well, it's used in the cutting of lacquers. Okay, bear with me. Here we go. Yeah, because I'm thinking um, of vocal tap delay. So tell me what the story is. Yeah, it basically goes like this. The current lathe that is being used these days can be set or is set up such that there is the same signal being fed to an advance. How can I put this? The signal is delayed in the cutting process such that the lathe can open and close the amount of space between grooves to accommodate the loudest signal on the lacquer. In other words, if you didn't use the delay, the lathe couldn't accommodate printing or grooving the material. Let's go back a half a step. When you cut a lacquer, you're cutting a groove into a piece of lacquer material, vinyl material. The lines on the record might look exactly straight and straight and narrow, so to speak, when you look at the record. But if you looked at that record under a microscope, you'd see that the groove is like a living thing. It gets wider and narrower. It gets deeper and less deep. It has excursions that make it look like a snake. Sometimes the lines are indeed and when the lines are straight and the level is low, the grooves can be fit closely together. As the volume of the music increases, the spacing of the grooves has to get bigger and wider so that you can accommodate the movement of the actual signal on the vinyl record. So the more sophisticated the advance signal is, the more sophisticated the spacing of the grooves can be, and the louder a signal in the final analysis can go onto the final record. Right. And the way it works is you first feed the signal into a delay unit, and it comes out of the delay unit and then goes to the program unit, which is actually the cutter head, and that is what cuts into the, the lacquer. But what sets up the cutter head is this delay and it tells the cutter head how much space it's going to need in order to accommodate the loudness of the music that's coming up. Wow, pretty cool. I'd love to elicit a comment from you about, could you give us a story of a master that came in to you, so this is out of the mix room, a mix two-track, where you put it up and... It sounds like maybe Brian Wilson, obviously, is a case of this, but you put it up and like, wow, 
it just knocked your socks off. And and maybe you did some stuff to it, maybe not. You didn't do too much. But I just want that. Could you relay that experience of like, holy cow, just, you know, really something that knocked your socks off? And then maybe follow that up with, and of course, not naming names, follow that up with something that did the opposite or something came in. It was really bad <laughs> and you had to do a lot to it. Well, actually, the level of artists that I was working with could pretty much consistently be counted upon to give me good-sounding masters. I remember cutting Tears for Fears, selling the Seeds of Love, which knocked me out. That was great. There were albums for R.E.M., which sounded really good. The Brian Wilson project that we were discussing. I also cut file for uh, 10 albums by the Rolling Stones when the reissue project went through and someone decided very wisely to go back to the very, very original master tapes from the very early 1960s and master those, which ended up with uh, a sonic fidelity which was completely unheard of in those releases. I mean, everybody knows what satisfaction is supposed to sound like. But because they went back to the original masters and took extreme care in the transfer and very judicious use of EQ and compression and, and all the mastering tools that you might ordinarily use, the, the clarity and the impact and the definition was whole quantum leap better than the satisfaction that everybody was used to. I have to jump in here. I can't imagine that the original two-track mix master of, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash comes walking in on a FedEx truck. What is the process of getting those master mixes in your hands as the engineer? Can you give us a glimpse of what that process is like? You know, I think they came in on the, through the FedEx truck. <laughs> um, honestly, I think they got sent overnight from England, and they went to... Uh, mastering studio that did the creative work, and then from there, I got the product that Bob Ludwig in this particular case turned out, and I was the one who had to then transfer absolutely as much of that sound quality from the high-resolution files that he gave me to the vinyl records. Wow, fascinating. <laughs> I just, I get a kick out of the idea of the FedEx truck coming down off 11th Avenue in Manhattan, you know, could you sign for this? It's uh, Jumpin' Jack something or other. I don't know. Exactly. Well, believe it or not, I think that was the procedure. I don't think they sent somebody over on the Queen Mary doing a land crossing, holding the master's deer close to their heart all the way across the Atlantic. There were records that came in that were not well recorded. There were some... She's not, I don't know how to do this without actually naming names. and. Yeah, and just you know. be careful. <laughs> <laughs> There are songs that have entered current civilization that you might hear being played, for example, as part of movie soundtracks, catchy little tunes associated with them that I had been given to master originally as 12-inch vinyl dance records. And they were later bought out by movie companies to be featured in a series of movies that sounded pretty horrible when they came to me to begin with. And is that because of the mix process, or so, did someone already have their mastering paws on them? No, no, it was the mix process. They gave me something that was finished, and by God, it was just 
in need of surgery, you know? Well, give me an example. Like, what would you need to do with it? Was it heavy EQ? Was it too dynamic? Um, yeah, it required heavy EQ. It required just about every piece of gear that I had in the <laughs> studio at the time. You know, for example, the, the bass was not right, and the thing sounded very harsh. There were a multiplicity of problems. But uh, <laughs> it's a crazy world. I did what I did, and I did a good job, and it was a you know, big number one worldwide hit, and the artist ended up buying a mansion with the profits from that record. Well, that's a perfect place to leave the conversation for the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I don't know. You know, you, you get what you get, and then you just have to listen to it and say, how the heck can I bring this from level A of quality to level A triple plus, you know? Yeah, no doubt. Awesome. Thanks so much, Don. Okay, speak to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Conk and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thanks for listening.